Hello and welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast, a podcast that explores L&D that works with those who are making it work. In this episode, I'm welcoming back Guy Wallace to discuss performance-oriented soft skills development. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Guy, welcome back to the Learning and Development Podcast. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me back. Uh, now, Guy, we've had a request from listener Annie Bacos. Annie, I hope I've uh, I've I pronounced your name correctly, uh, to explore performance-oriented soft skills development. It was you who introduced me to a quote by the late Joe Harless. Um, and, the, and the quote is, soft skills are only hard skills out of context. Now, before we go any further, uh, what does this mean? Well, uh, first of all, that's that quote is mine. I went and checked back to some articles of Joe's from 1983 and 1985, and I've been paraphrasing them all along. His quote is really, soft skills is a euphemism for hard skills, which we have not worked hard enough yet to define. Oh, nice. And that was in a 1983 article. So 40 years ago, these guys were talking about this and, and their practice and their perspective on all this really goes back into the 1960s. So this is really not new. Um, but what this means is that um, we start, we, we begin with the middle in mind. We don't mm -hmm. begin with the end in mind, the terminal performance, the outputs produced that lead to outcomes when we meet or don't meet stakeholder requirements. So we're not focused on, you know, what's this really trying to accomplish? We start in the middle and we start with, and this has been an issue since I first got into the business. It was an issue that was talked about back in the 60s and 70s. And it's, we've done this with uh, behaviors. Mm -hmm. We've done this with competencies. And now we're on the skills bandwagon. And we start with that. We start with a skill or a behavior or a competency, but we're not thinking about it in the context of the learners who are performers who have a job to do. Mm -hmm. And they've got tasks to perform, both behavioral and cognitive tasks. And that requires knowledge, skills, behaviors, but we, if we don't understand that performance context and what they're trying to accomplish, what outputs they're trying to produce, we may not understand that their performance context varies from time to time. And therefore, the response, the performance response should vary as well. And so perhaps you need to shift your behavior from one to another or your competency from one to another or apply the skill differently. So really, it's all about looking at things in context and understanding a skill in a context. So if I if I could just uh, paraphrase some of that back to you, just to just to get to, to clarity on the understanding. Are you saying that there aren't any soft skills um, that um, that these soft skills, as as you and I have discussed many a time and I've, I've discussed on the podcast with other guests, um, are isolated skill sets that are isolated for the purpose of categorization and delivery, mainly for the convenience of learning and development and perhaps managers and leaders. But but by keeping them as soft, we we almost give away our power to to analyze and then actually address them. Because the long and the short of it is, Guy, is that this this is a huge market like for for vendors to sell generic isol uh, solutions for for 
generic isolated skill sets that in any given organization may or may not be enhanced by engagement in in this heavy investment i, I mean look, I've, I've gone on a little bit there are there are there such things guy as uh, as soft skills in your opinion well they are soft until we make them hard every mm -hmm. soft skill has the potential to be made into hard skills when we look at them in context if mm -hmm. we don't look at them in context they remain a soft skill um so we are opportunity rich in that we can look for that now soft skills are more educational than enterprise learning and development in education you don't know exactly what guy's job is going to be but we know he needs to understand spreadsheets or he knows mm -hmm. he needs to know how to do active listening but we don't understand that context so we can't get as authentic uh with it as we might simply because we don't understand we're incapable it's not possible or we just don't do it because our own philosophies and processes and practices in a in a corporate environment or an enterprise environment we're not enabled we're not encouraged we're not demanded to go and do that in mm. everybody has more more of an educational mindset i think because we've all experienced that and not everybody has experienced good training. Those were the terms that were used, education and training. It's all part of learning. And so soft skills are not bad unto themselves unless we expect people to uh, learn them and then immediately be able to apply them for success in their performance context. And that's where the issue lies, I think. Mm, there's, there's there's so much to unpack there, Guy. Um, it, what The way you've just described it there reminds me of uh of something else that you introduced me to um uh i think that uh, that that you you received the wisdom from uh from dr dick clark and this is about near far transfer uh about if the uh the 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 learning um context isn't uh, as closely aligned or identical to the working context then the chances of actual application are negligible uh, like, but you know, but but that goes counter to to the way that that learning and development is done, pretty pretty much universally, which is we provide learning experiences and learning resources, whether that be uh, content or courses, so that we so that the self directed learner will 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 engage, will attend or complete a course at their own leisure, and that will have an impact on performance at some point but you and i know that relies far too heavily on hope than actual planned demonstrable difference would you say that learning and development at scale and the way that we, we that we view our value uh, and, and all we can possibly offer with you know we're small teams in large organizations do you think that that's the biggest problem or is or is it something else no i i think that's it uh i'm i'm not sure that l and d can scale in an enterprise. Now, that's an overgeneralization because if everybody needs to learn how to log in, okay, then we can teach them that. And and if they know enough about computers and logging in for other things, they can, you know, that's a that's a closer transfer. So it always depends on the learner's incoming knowledge and skills from prior education and experience. So what's near for you might be far for me. And mm -hmm. so that's part of that individualization that we need to do of learning content to pick up the learner where they are in that mm -hmm. learning progression 
and allow them to jump ahead because they already know this, they already know this, whether we want to test them or not at all, that all depends on what risks and rewards there are. But we need to allow people to jump into where they need to be, where they currently are in their knowledge and skills, and then progress from there. But but so we try to do too many one size fits all where we teach them things that have face validity. Of course, oh yeah, everybody needs that. But what everybody does with it might be quite different. And if we don't understand that, then we cannot help bridge the learner from going from formal learning into some informal means, whether that's social learning and asking their neighbor, or whether that's trial and error, they try it and try it and try it until they finally get it right. Um, and so we're, and I think that that's one of the reasons why we talk so much about, well, so much is learned in formal learning on the job. It's because there wasn't adequate training mm -hmm. of how to do your job. And, and sometimes when we talk to somebody in a social learning context, they may steer us the wrong way. So, you know, we shouldn't try to tackle everything. We should really work on the things that are critical to our enterprise mm. and focus on that and leave the rest of it to informal means such as social learning and trial and error learning. Yeah, I love that guy. You know, there, there are plenty of priorities in our organizations that perhaps aren't gaining our attention or, or perhaps people deem learning and development too busy uh, or or maybe not effective enough to to get involved in the stuff that needs true attention because we're seen as the providers of learning um, and, and and when we're pigeonholed with that then we've also got to settle for not being able to prove that that what we spend our money on works so let's get let's get to the nub of this and to, to Annie's question how do we actually go about doing this and addressing uh, soft skills development with a performance-oriented approach? So if you are given a skill to address, then one of the things that I use, I call it either sneaky trick 47 or 62, but it's basically to do my best active listening to the requester so that they understand that I understand their request. Mm -hmm. And when they're comfortable that, you know, I haven't missed the boat on that, then I start, then I will some find some way, some place in the conversation to quickly segue to, so what would authentic practice with feedback look like? Mm -hmm. And it's in that point where I'll, they might be able to tell me what that performance application is, but they may be a middleman and so they don't really know themselves. So I can't try to force them into defining that for me, but I may help them understand that they're asking for one size fits all. When they, if they responded, well, practice would be different for everybody. Well, then, then that's going to be the huge issue. Now we can take content that already exists or go buy something when we've uncovered a need and we can bookend generic content, educational content by telling the learner upfront, this is how this applies to your job. This is what's in it for you. This is what's in it for the organization. You know, what risks are there for you as a performer or for, for the organization, et cetera. And that's why you need to learn this. And we might also tell them, okay, they're going to use different terminology in this generic content that we don't use here in our company. We have our own jargon. Um, and we'll get back to that after you've taken this and mastered the core generic parts. And then the bookend at the back end is practice with feedback that's authentic. We can either use real work 
or we can use last week's real work and have guy work something that that David's already done and see if guy can do it as well, you know, and and learn that way, or we can simulate it in other ways. But but that's what we are often missing. We don't go that last mile or kilometer to what how to apply that in somebody's specific work processes or what the quality movement called work streams or what is nowadays known as workflow. Mm. And but that's what we have to have our eye on is what is that terminal performance that we expect the learners to do mm-hmm. and how do we give them sufficient practice with feedback so they can learn something generically, but then learn how to apply that. And mm. we've got to avoid the one and done practice exercise because that's often not sufficient. That's it. And, uh, and avoid filling a bucket full of best practice that doesn't actually reflect the work situation uh, at all. So 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 if I if I understand this correctly, it is um, understanding from the stakeholder themselves what it is specifically that they mean that 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 if people are performing in the ways that they would expect them to that you've you've actually held them to account for describing that to you, letting us all in on what that is. Would you say that uh, that there's um, uh, understanding the consequences of and of not doing this as well? Because if you're addre- if you're addressing real problems uh, or you're asking uh, a a group a cohort of of employees to change the way that they do something, then you need a lever. Then they they're not going to do that often if they've found a shortcut and they're being um rewarded for for the shortcut there's got to be a consequence isn't there for them so that either if they continue to the way they do it then we'll see that this outcome is being achieved or this outcome is not being achieved therefore we need your buy-in to change the outcome and in order to change the outcome we've got to change the behavior or the the performance is is that part of it guy yeah we need to look at the as we need to do systems thinking around systems engineering of enablement of performance. And so uh, a classic example from 1981, Gary Rumler at Motorola, my first, I was actually there a week before my first day on the job, but he talked about the first thing that he looks at when there's a performance problem, if that's the impetus, the driver for a project, there's a performance problem or issue or something. He said he first looks at the process itself. Hmm. Is there one or isn't there one? If there is one, are people adhering to it? And if not, why not? Maybe it's a stupid process. Maybe there's a quicker route to it so the people don't follow the process. But then he said the second thing, and he always gives the learner, the human, the benefit of the doubt, and he looks at the consequence system. Is the consequence system driving inappropriate behaviors? You know, if you take your best performer and load them up with extra work, more work than anybody else, they're going to get smart and go, okay, I'm going to slack off a little bit here so that I don't get overly burdened with And so we need to look at the consequence system. What's the consequences, short-term and long-term, positive and negative for performance, the ideal performance that we want. Maybe that's quite arduous. Maybe that's difficult. Maybe there's a shortcut that's way too risky for the organization, but that's what people are doing because their supervisor or the customer is breathing down their neck to get it done and get it done right now. And so that needs to be counterbalanced um, and, and, so for a large extent, the supervisor is really key in looking at that. Could also be the peers, depending on you know how close the supervisor is to the people and their work processes. Mm. So, so if we take a uh, um, a practical example that 
the listener or most listeners is going to resonate with something like first line management it is uh you management is seen as a, a set of soft skills um and at some point a new manager will be expected to attend what is likely to be the organization's flagship first line manager program uh likely to be weeks or months after they've taken the role uh, and guy between you and i I've, I've attended these things and i've been partly to delivering these things um the majority of the time the the return on investment is negligible. I mean, uh, we 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 know this because we probably boasted in front of rooms. Well, I I certainly have, and told people after three day courses, if you take one thing away, then it would have been worth it. <laughs> I mean, that is it's a it's <laughs> that that's an abundant misuse of company resources, if you ask me. Uh, hence, we're having this conversation now. But if we took first line manager development as the the topic, everyone's going to recognise that. Now, the way that we uh, accept that request for training or that we um, uh, readdress this with what we might have is, is probably going to be the, the foundational point. It's going to be the the, the the initial point here. The reason that it exists. Now, you've touched on it before uh, um, earlier on by saying, you know, my name is quoting you here, that there is a distinction between education here and affecting the performance. The vast majority of first line manager training is educational. It bears no resemblance whatsoever to what any manager in that room will actually do and is accountable for and will be rewarded for achieving in their job. Therefore, it's purely educational. So how do we make that performance oriented, perhaps uh, yeah, from from two parts, from its initial inception when the stakeholder knocks on the door, who may be our HR director or otherwise, we've already got a program that we wonder whether it's doing anything at all. Yeah, this is tricky because uh, so it depends on where you're starting. If it's a blank slate, that's probably a lot easier. Mm. If there's a lot of investment and in content, from, you know, that you bought or built, then you've got to deal with that. But so it's always looking at how do these things fit into that performance context? What tasks does that enable? Mm. And how does that then link to the outputs or products of performance? And that what are the stakeholders? There's a downstream customer, there's regulators, there's the uh, shareholders, there's fellow employees, you know, so what are what's that context and beginning to understand that and teaching people how to apply it. So if you taught empathy, so what does empathy really look like? Let's have some authentic cases where you're dealing with an employee and, you know, so, but, but that's it just to get, it's all about getting real, I think, mm -hmm. and understanding the performance and having people practice that under all of the conditions. And I like to start off my practice with, you know, the easy peasy, you learn something and now you apply it. That wasn't too tough. Mm -hmm. And then the, the next round in the exercise is to make it a little bit tougher and then the next one, even tougher. And then the last one is from Hades, from hell. This is a, as hellacious as the performance that we expect that you might find someday is. Mm -hmm. And can we prepare you for that? Now, that builds confidence in the learner to go back and try some of these things. Uh, Neil Rackham back in 81 talked about uh, too often we teach people things and we don't give them sufficient practice. They go back to the workplace and try it and struggle with it, and they revert immediately to what they had been doing before mm. because that's more comfortable. They know they, they can handle that. And so if we don't give people the sufficient amount of practice with feedback, corrective feedback and reinforcing feedback, and give that feedback just before Guy is going to try it again. We can give him feedback after he did it, 
But then he's going to dismiss it and he's going to write it off and he's going to say, well, you know, David, he just he just thinks like that. But I need to know what I really need to change about my practice, my applying knowledge and skills in my work, in something that's authentic, something that feels real. Now, if I've come from the workplace and I've been in the job for a while, then I know what's real or not. I, I have a better feel for that. If I'm brand new and haven't taken the reins of that new job yet, then I don't really know. And so there's a difference in terms of the incoming knowledge and skills uh, and just situational awareness of the learners that we need to take into context. And if we see that our our learners are all over the place on the continuum from no experience at all to lots of experience, we need to find ways to accommodate that. Mm. So, yeah, again, I'm pulling pulling um, previous responses into uh, into this now as well because if if we were developing a first line manager development program from scratch now, uh, we generally would do so based on the premise that the 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 common understanding in the room we've got we've always got to go to the 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 lowest common denominator like regardless of whether somebody may have been in a role for two years and figured out what the job is and achieved some level of success there'll be people who are brand new to it so we've got to build them up from nothing we've then you know so we then start building filling up this empty bucket and we 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 put in things like the difference between a, a leader and a manager just for absolute clarity uh we would add the dynamics of a team we might do, put in there uh, something like purpose driven leadership about what it means to craft your own vision as a as a manager the grow model all of this stuff we've filled this bucket now it's an educational um uh vessel really based based on the premise that even if you've been a manager a while this is probably going to be coming in useful but in order to affect the way that people are actually performing within their role this requires a different type of analysis doesn't it guy a different type of engagement at the outset to make sure that we we do understand what it is that that first line managers require not just in our organizations perhaps even in their 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 function because we, we've got to admit after all this time an it manager's role is different from a sales manager's role yeah. there, there probably isn't sufficient enough crossover to justify them being in the room and learning these principles these educational principles about being a manager for the first time if we expect something different to happen so so what is it that we're missing as far as analysis is concerned by filling a bucket full of educational principles well, I, this this has triggered me now to talk about an uh, an experience that I had back in 1993. My business partners, two business partners, and I had done about 20 some different managerial analyses for instructional purposes, for training purposes, learning purposes, and we sat in our conference room for three days and took a look at all of these performance models because we're all about, you know, how do we break the job down into different chunks? What are the outputs in that chunk? What are the tasks? What are the knowledge and skills for that? And so we can align all of that stuff and understand it. Well, we then generated what we would call a mastery model for management. And there's a leadership component of that. There's dealing with the stakeholders. There's doing operational budgeting and planning, et cetera. Um, then there's a core of that, which is unique to each function because sales management is different than IT management, which is different than L&D management, which is different than recruiting and selection management. But the leadership and the strategic planning all may tie together like you do the 
the budgeting. The finance people tell you, you'll do the budgeting this way. It'll be in this format so we can add it all up and subtract it and manage it. So there's a process and a system there. But if you can think about, well, you can do that for strategic planning as well. And many organizations do. Um, but but And then there's a the support. There's the, the hiring and management of staff. And HR has rules and procedures that we use and all of that. So there's a bunch of things that are common, pretty much per for every manager mm. and there's things that are unique and so figuring out how to segregate that so we build a model and then I'll, since 93 i have done approximately 20 different management analyses using that as the starter and one of them i did for the norfolk naval shipyard a part of the u.s navy the civilian branch and my production managers were looking at my model and they were going yeah, we do that one, but strategic planning, no, we're too low in the food chain. We don't do that. My boss's boss does that. Maybe my boss does that. I have no idea. Hmm. And so we were dealing with master performers about what of this model resonates? What are things that you do part of this model? And then let's dive in and take guys' generic content descriptions and make them specific to your organization, make mm -hmm. it authentic to them. So we used their language, displaced all of the language that I had. And so we started with that performance focus because there were output in every chunk, you know, you're doing strategic planning, there's a strategic plan that's produced. Mm -hmm. But before that, there are other outputs that you would produce. You'd go and interview all of your customers that you are there to support if you're an L&D. And what are their strategic plans? And what are their tactical plans for this year and next year? And, and, and am I going to be ready to support them? So I have to produce many interim outputs to get to my major output. But again, it all goes to, in my view, the outputs that are produced. Mm. How do we measure them? Who are the stakeholders? A good outcome or a bad outcome depends on whether we meet or not the stakeholder requirements. You can please the customer, but have the regulators on your back because you've broken regulations and that's no good. So how do we balance all the stakeholder requirements, understand them so that we can achieve, our, or our learners and their organizations can achieve outputs or out, uh, outcomes that are good, but, but you can't practice producing outcomes. You can practice producing outputs. Mm -hmm. And so my focus has always been outputs uh, and the tasks and the stakeholders for both, mm -hmm. because too often we, we we ignore the stakeholders for the process, the tasks, and focus on the outputs or the reverse, where we're focused on tasks and don't think about the output. So mm -hmm. is that task good or bad? Well, actually, it's within the context. Does that help or hinder the production of the output did that lead to a good output or a bad output and what, what you just described there um and as you as you began to answer that question was exactly how you turn soft skills into hard skills you'd outlined there what it is that managers in any given department in in an organization are expected to achieve um which, which made me reflect for a moment uh there guy again on on mainly on my experiences and uh and, and what my peer group um would would be describing Quite often, you'd hear people say, hey, I'm looking to design a new management or leadership program. Uh, could you send me yours or you send me the content that you have? Again, straight to solution. Sounds like what you've got there, Guy, is a framework based on uh, 20 different organizations with that with you've employed this. What were the learnings in 
establishing what it was that managers actually did. So you could take this framework instead of the content and then determine what in the framework was required, but then seek the internal proprietary know-how to plug the content gap, not the outside non-contextual, largely generic off the shelf, only slightly tweaked content yeah. I, I mean am I, am I right and and surely there's a there's a book to plug at this point guy because I'm sure you've uh, you published on this as well well I've written about this several times with different titles and uh you know I can share something with you the mo- the, the latest version of that but but yeah I think that some way you know one of the sneaky tricks when you're getting a request is not to challenge the requester yeah you can clarify that request but don't challenge because think about it you don't want to be challenged when you make a request mm-hmm. but you appreciate somebody clarifying it so that you know yeah you got it okay you understand but then the sneaky trick is to flip that as soon as possible segue into what does that mean performance wise okay mm-hmm. cuz that that what they're asking for has face validity let's make sure we understand the performance validity of a request for a particular skill or a series of skills a skill set or uh, you know the top skills and all that that's that's uh, making the rounds but but so we need to understand so where how does that play out and really, my what I learned, and I don't know how I came up with this, was back in the 80s. I, you know, somebody was going on about they wanted this, they needed to know this, they needed to know that, they needed to know this, they needed to know that. And I was, you know, as a consultant, you've got to nod your head and smile. And then I flipped it to, so tell me about that first one and how does that look like in performance? What would the practice with feedback? Because we all know that practice is important, right? Um, you know, that it, as a as a guitarist. You know that you can learn certain things, but if you don't practice, you won't be very good. Mm. And and so we need authentic practice that replicates, that reflects the performance out there on the job. I, I've been to too many training programs where I was darn sure that I was being trained for somebody else's job. Yep. Yeah, that, that title, that resonated, that had face validity, but then the content that I was put through was not authentic and i maybe i saw yeah my so one of the things that dr richard e clark had taught me back 20 some years ago was that between five and 15 percent of people can learn out of context mm-hmm. they can learn it and they go oh i see how that applies over here and they can do that other people cannot yeah and when he told me that i thought immediately that i bet you it's the executives and leaders that are best at that and then they wonder why that educational stuff isn't working. Well, we taught them, but they don't seem to be able to apply it well enough to actually have a positive impact on performance. So we always have impact. We just don't want it to be nil or negative. We want it to be su- significant, sufficient to our investments, uh, because otherwise we should go make those investments elsewhere and avoid L&D that really doesn't have a bang for the buck, so to speak. Mm, yeah. Uh, it really resonated when you said there uh, about attending a training program uh, that you thought was for someone else's job. It Honestly, that that really resonates. Going back to that first line manager training guy, how many first line manager training courses have you attended where L&D are teaching you how to do really good L&D? They're teaching you how to coach, how to have development conversations. And you're having a look and going, OK, I, I get that bit. And then the L&D person or the trainer saying, and the most important part is developing your team. Yeah, I do get that. But how do I run my budget? Uh, how do I my, my manage my uh, my workload? Uh, how do I gain additional resources 
for uh, to to get what we need to do uh, done. And how do I manage a difficult customer relationship? You know, all of this really absolutely integral stuff. That and look, let's 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 cut straight to the chase. If a first line manager doesn't do any of the the, the team development stuff for a month, then I'm not sure too many people would notice. If you don't do all the operational stuff for a month, you might not come back for month two, right? Yeah. So, uh, so, and I'm not, and I'm not diminishing there the what a, a manager's role in developing a team member. It could be absolutely integral, and and it can, it can be the most impactful experience that an employee has at your organization. But if we're thinking that first line manager development is about what we filled our bucket with, about the people development part of that we've, we've got to take a look at ourselves and say at least acknowledge that is <laughs> uh, incomplete to say the very very least mm-hmm. I, I, i'll tell you another story it relates to the uh, norfolk naval shipyard story where i was doing production managers uh supervisors and their managers zone managers and one of the things so on the we were creating a what's nowadays known as a learning and development path or journey and on the front end it's always orientation of the organization orientation to my job and my immediate survival skills and when we got into the design and we're sorting everything that we have performance wise and all the knowledge and skills into this path to create a, a, a sequence that makes sense and we got to what are they what's the first thing you need as a supervisor what are those immediate survival skills the answer was fixing somebody's pay problems because now you got the workforce upset and everybody's upset because their pay is off they didn't get the overtime that they were supposed to get or whatever that was the first thing that the supervisor needed to know how to do was go resolve pay disputes Mm -hmm. and make their workforce happy with that so you know and and Part of my process has always been to engage what I call master performers. The late Tom Gilbert called them exemplar performers. And and I was told by my clients at Motorola, we hate that word. It's a $3 college word. And I said, what about master performers? And they go, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> so I want the top performers and, and I want to put them into an analysis team and then a design team. And I also want other subject matter experts. There may be people from regulatory affairs that should be a part of this. They don't know how to do that job, but they know what the regulations are that you people are. So you build a team of master performers and other subject matter experts, Mm -hmm. and you facilitate them to define the performance, define, and then systematically derive the enabling knowledge and skills and then you design, well, what comes first, second, or third? Mm-hmm. What's most important? What is something you can just tell them and they'll already know and enough said, and you don't need any practice at all. Guy, you don't even need a demonstration. Just tell them. These people, now, whether they're right or wrong, I'm going to go with what they say because they're living in that environment. And the other thing we often do when we're assembling those kinds of teams is we bring in people who are more novice performers, but show great promise Mm -hmm. because they can tell the people who have been on the payroll in that job for 20, 30 years, look, you don't know what it's like nowadays. This is what's needed. That's more important than this. Yeah. You old guys think that that this is what's important, but this is, these are the things that are really important. Mm -hmm. And most of the time those, the old guard appreciates that and they go, Ooh, he's probably right. Or she is probably right. And we should, yeah, we we're trapped in our own mindset. So it's a good to have a variety of people, and it's the facilitator's role then to balance all the concerns, all of the issues that all these people have, and capture the data that's needed 
for our team's next downstream steps. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. We don't have to define in great detail the cognitive thinking behind that behavioral task set. We can do that in development. We don't have to do that analysis in the analysis or discovery phase. We don't even have to get to that in the design phase. But when we get into development, we better capture that because when we go to a pilot test, our first test of a delivery of our content, we need to see whether it's going to work or not. Yeah. And, you know, we, we discussed this uh, on the Pivot's performance series, uh, one, one of the series about getting a group of, uh, of folks together. You just save so much time building on uh, yeah. cognitive task analysis as well. That's that the one individual master performer can't possibly, what well, well, they can't know all of the cognitive processes required in order to accomplish the task so so yeah they've automated they've automated according to what the research shows is they have automated up to 70 percent of what they know when they do something Mm. and they can give you 30 percent now the good news is every master performer is automated a different you know 70 percent so if you talk to enough of them then you can get it uh, but then if person A says this, but person B contradicts it, then you got to circle back to A to say, B said this, what do you, so I just put them in a room yeah. to shortcut the process. And this isn't always feasible for all of my clients, but it's all about the data that we generate, regardless right. of how we generate it. It's about the data validity. Is it accurate, complete, and appropriate? And so that's what we're striving to do is understand the outputs, how they're measured, the tasks, how they're measured, and what you got to know to be able to do. And if we get the right P and I, one thing I learned also is that I needed to have my client and the stakeholders handpick my sources, the mm. people I was going to interview, the places I was going to observe, the documents that I might review, because I've had my analysis report thrown across the room in front of 30 people because I had the wrong names on the front as the contributors to my insight that I captured on behalf of my client. And so you know, it's 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 a tricky thing. And our L&D leaders need to put in the philosophies, the processes, the practices that will lead to impactful performance-based instruction, either performance guides or job aids or, or performance support and or learning experiences that focus on how to do the job. Yeah, and and going right back to the, uh, the the topic of the the podcast here, when it comes to the soft skills, it means that that when you understand what it is your master performers are doing, that's validated by those people who are perhaps more novice, but you know that can that can uh, uh, challenge some of the relevancy. What you are able to create as a result is a map of the actual territory the map of your actual organization to say, this is how we communicate. These are the presentations that land. This is how you uh, you balance the priorities according to what's expected and rewarded. This is what first line managers do here and in this department in order to get the right results. The map of the territory rather than some idealized map of a territory, which is designed by, by, by some learning and development from an educational perspective, hoping that by a hook or by crook, there will be some application and there will be some improvement, but certainly much more in hope than in, in judgment. But you've touched on some really important points here, Guy. And I know that, again, we touched uh, on this pretty much with every guest that we that we had on our Pivots Performance Series, and that is stakeholders, because nobody is asking for this stuff. Stakeholders will generally I'd say, Guy, I'd like a course. 
employees themselves, you know, guy, I've just been promoted. I need to go on a course. So if no one's asking for this, how do we get the license to do the required analysis and reconcile our approach against the request for training? So this is this is rather tricky to do. So nobody's asking for this because the name on the door, so to speak, is L&D. Mm-hmm. So that's what they're expecting from us. We can earn the name change before we make the name change to be performance enablement or something like that. This has been a controversy for decades as to what we should call ourselves. Um, but learning is a core part of it, but it should be performance-based learning not just learning for the sake of learning. And so what I've discovered when I've asked my clients to pull together this, their key stakeholders, because we're going to need their support. You know, when we go to uh, affect transfer, we're going to need them to help us transfer this into the workplace. And we're going to need them to help us measure whether we had an impact or not. And so my clients sometimes buy into this. Sometimes they don't like sharing their authority with a a steering team of their clients. But when I get them together and I start talking about performance and outputs and all of that, that resonates with them because they've got a mindset about getting the job done and they know what that looks like. It's about outputs. It's not stuff you know. It's about what you do and what their people do and whether that's any good or not. And so I think stakeholders generally appreciate when we talk about this from a performance perspective rather than from a learning perspective. Hmm. And I would say that I like to be a business champion first and last. And in between, I'll be a learning champion. Hmm. But it's really all about the business. So when I start asking questions of my client and their stakeholders about the business and how that's measured and who are the stakeholders, I've had people, for example, at Motorola who told me, guy, we don't like this analysis stuff. Um, we hate it when people like you come back 90 days later and tell us what we told you on day one. Well, that <laughs> told me immediately that they'd had bad experiences with people in the training department doing analysis, uh, analysis paralysis, and they never saw it. the analysis data that was produced ever being used anywhere. They didn't see where it went, so it was a wasted effort. So then I would employ another sneaky trick and start conducting the analysis with them, identifying the outputs that are produced, how are they measured, who are the stakeholders, what are the tasks performed, and I would exhaust their knowledge Mm -hmm. in front of them as a group of people. And they go, well, we don't know, but that's a darn good question. We need to get Guy the answer to that thing. I said, Mm -hmm. let me go do this analysis thing. I'll be back in 30 days and not 90, and I'll give you the results of this. But first of all, who are your top performers that I should go talk to. These are the sources. Now, when I talk to individuals, they're going to tell me things and I've got to take that with a grain of salt. I cannot take that as truth Hmm. because I've got to hear enough of the truth from different people to generate a perspective that says, I think this is, you know, what they're talking about because everybody's language is all mixed and we you know, th- this it's, it's not just semantics, it's always semantics and with a meaning behind th- the way people talk about their work. And people don't often talk about their outputs. They, they are, find it more easy to talk about their tasks. Well, I do this, I do that, I do that. I say, what do you produce? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. I do this, I do that. And so I let them go on telling me about their tasks until they say, and then we produce the report. Ah, the report is the output. How do we know a good one from a bad one? Well, then that unleashes everybody's, you know, because they've seen good and bad work and they know 
how they've been reinforced or beat up in terms of their own performance, but it's about that. Mm -hmm. Then the tasks can make sense in that context. And then we can talk about, here's a soft skill. How does this fit? Where do you use active listening? Well, we do it here and here. Is it the same in both places? Oh, no, this is friendly and this is mean. This is mm. <laughs> this is confrontational <laughs> bad down here. Oh, okay, so we got to teach Guy, the learner, how to do it in the easier place. And then we also got to prepare him for dealing in that hellacious moment there. Mm -hmm. When I talk about practice exercises from Hades, I have, I have stakeholders and clients and learners go, yeah, that's what I need. Prepare me for that because I know that's out there and I'm going to have to face that someday. Prepare, prepare me for the worst case scenario. Just don't throw me into the deep end of the pool and expect me to swim. Mm -hmm. One thing that, uh, that that always lingered with me to sum up what, uh, what you said uh, towards the beginning there, Guy, was when uh, when Dawn Snyder said on uh, on our episode that that she begins the analysis. She walks into the stakeholder meeting, the very first one, and begins analysis there. So doesn't ask for permission. Does you know? There's no going in, having a conversation, saying, right. So what we need to do is we need to do some analysis. It's almost if you're going to do that, and that's the first thing that you that the engagement with that stakeholder. Goes, oh no 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 no! I didn't ask for analysis. I just I I told you what I wanted. But if you go in there thinking, right, I'm a detective here, and and what I need to do is I I. I, I need to begin my work so that I'm not asking for permission to do what I could have done when I walked in later on down the line. And then there's something that, um, that that struck me all the way through what you'd said. Again, I think it came out in our Pivots Performance series was that that you can do group analysis and call it a workshop. Right. And that looks like you're delivering training and you can do that in days. So so we've got to be really careful between accepting the um the request for help which often is what what a, a request for training is and then trying to to segregate that into chunks that makes us help us to make sense of it and also perhaps increase our self importance you know maybe i'm being a bit harsh there but but if we say right so so stakeholders invite us in we know that there's going to be a training request we know it's going to be bespoke and if it's important there are going to be key outcomes to understand when i walk in that door i'm analyzing the next thing if they've asked for training i'm going to say yes and i'm going to get as many people in a room as i possibly can and i'm going to continue the analysis but they're going to think that it's training right and then and then build it from there I used to be upset back in my younger days when when the analysis team members, master performers, 15, 20, 25 years on the job, came out of it saying, this was the best training session yeah. I've ever been. And I would go, this <laughs> was an analysis session. This was not a training session. And I didn't appreciate how much they learned from each other. Yep. Well, I do it this way, and then I do it that way, and then and then somebody says, "Well, over here on the West Coast, we do it this way." When we ever come in that situation, and people are going, "Oh yeah, let me write that down." Yeah, yeah, I gotta, we gotta talk at uh, at dinner tonight, and and so they can learn from each other their mm -hmm. best practices based on their real world experiences, and and what guy is driving at is, you know. What is this output? What are the gaps then? Because once we've identified ideal performance or the best performance or some aspirational level of performance and what that looks like, then we can begin to understand, well, what are the current state gaps against that ideal, against that target? And what are the causes of those gaps? And this is where 
having some sort of a mental model that says, well, it's the process. It's the process. It's, you know, and the master performers, they ignore the process. All the newbies follow the process and fail. And master performers go, yeah, we learned that a long time ago. So, and so if it's not the process, it could be things in the environment. The the data and information is no good or untimely, or the tools and equipment or materials and supplies or the facilities or whatever could be an issue. Mm -hmm. It may not be the performer. The the late uh, quality guru, uh, W. Edwards Deming, said that 94% of the problems are not due to individual performers or team performers. It's due to the system. Mm -hmm. And management controls the system. And so we need to appreciate that we can hammer on people and teach them all sorts of things and then put them back in that performance context where they've got faulty process, faulty data and tools that aren't no good mm -hmm. and, and expect that to have the impact. So one of the key things is that when we're doing our analysis, we're looking beyond the human because they're in that context yeah. with these other things. And are they all adequate to the needs of the process that will produce outputs that are worthy. And when we help our clients understand these kinds of, I've had major projects canceled after the analysis phase, because I showed them none of your problems are really caused by a deficiency of knowledge and skill. It's all due to the process and these other environmental enablers. And then the clients go, ah, you know, guy, can you take a break? Well, no, I think you need to look at this. I don't know that training is the right thing. Well, then I've had clients that have been in that situation that said, yeah, but we want to do the training anyway, mm -hmm. because yeah, we were started this project based on all the problems we're hoping to solve. And you've helped us see where they are and now we can put critical action teams on them and get those fixed. But we're going to increase the workforce and bring in a whole bunch of new people. So we're going to need that training. And so we need it right away. Let's do that. And as we change the environment, the process, the tools, et cetera, we'll change the training. Mm -hmm. And so the learning that's more training oriented, and it doesn't always have to be training, it can be education, you know, depending on my knowledge and skills, you can make me generally aware and I can perform, or you need to give me deeper knowledge and I can perform, or you need to give me skills and practice in applying that. And then I can finally perform. So that's all over the map and it makes it difficult. Mm -hmm. And everything we uncover, just because we uncover a valid training need doesn't mean that we should meet it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's good places to invest your money and time. And there's other places that aren't so good, don't have the impact. And so if a business can't afford everything, we need to put them in the driver's seat so they can point us at their critical business issues so we can help them resolve their critical business issues, whether those are current state operations or a future strategic issue that's coming down the pike. Yeah. We need to take their guidance. We need to be better aligned with them. And we need to put ourselves and see ourselves as a support resource to them. We should not be picking and choosing what we work on and what we deploy. I think that's a huge mistake. And I've been seeing that for 44 years. That's bad. We need our clients to take ownership about where should we collectively, collaboratively invest in making improvements to the process because they live with the consequences of whether we do good stuff or not. Yeah. And if we do good stuff, but it has won't have any impact because there were other issues that should have been solved, like the faulty process. We need to work with them and help them direct us to do good for them. 
Yeah, and and another way of doing that, guy, because uh, the the way you describe that is clearly with uh, an L and D professional with a great deal of credibility and experience behind them, and there are going to be plenty of L and D folks perhaps that don't have the internal credibility. So another way of looking at that, and I don't know whether this is a British thing, uh, whether I'm uh, <laughs> whether I am uh, acceded too much uh, uh, power in doing this, is that if you design a solution that helps individuals and teams navigate an ineffective system, then your stakeholder can take a look at it and say, hey, wait, wait a minute, that's nuts. Why are we teaching them to navigate that nuts system when we yeah. could change the system? And that is another way in which L&D can influence you know, without eyes open, but without challenging a senior stakeholder that if you said change the system, they'd say to you, I'll change L&D if you don't watch your language. Yeah, when you when you when you've used their hand-picked resources and people mm -hmm. and the people have said the process is broken so we don't follow the darn thing and mm -hmm. the regulators go crazy because well that was approved by you know the 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 customer and the regular but it's their people the voice of the master performers you are channeling that back to the customers stakeholders ears mm -hmm. so they can decide because your people, your best people are saying they don't follow that process because if they did, they would not be successful. And they don't care whether you like it or not. You can fire them. They'll go work with the competitors tomorrow. Mm. They're that good. They feel that confident in their ability. Those are the people that I want in the room, by the way. The people who yeah. who will tell managers, you know, truth to power, mm -hmm. saying that process is terrible. I won't follow it. Uh, that tool that you use. That's totally inadequate. I use this other thing. Yeah, it's not approved. I don't care. Fire me. You know, but I'm getting the job done here. And so, you know, get out of my way. So when we listen to the people that have learned informally, most likely, how to get the job done effectively and efficiently, um, we need to see that as that somebody has blazed another trail across the campus. It's not following the sidewalk, the cement. They've blazed a trail. Yeah. It's now a path of dirt. But that's the shortest route. Maybe we should pave that maybe we should better enable everybody to do that and i think that these are what we experience in lnd is very similar in my view to what the qu total quality management movement has been experiencing for more decades than lnd has mm -hmm. but but how to find the best practices processes etc and either adopt them if you can, but adapt them most likely to fit that context. And when we teach people, we need to teach people how to vary if their performance context varies. Well, stakeholders sometimes want this, customers sometimes want this, and sometimes they want that. Mm -hmm. So how do we navigate that? We need to understand the variability in our learners' performance context and prepare them to deal with all that variability. And of course, we don't choke them with a whole bunch of content up front. We've got to teach them how to get into the shallow end of the pool, mm -hmm. play around, and then later on get into the deep end. So we have to be careful about that. And we need to work with the right people to get that done. We need to test what we do before we deploy it to everybody to mm -hmm. make sure that it is accurate, complete, and appropriate for that audience, and will have the impact that we want. Uh, so, Guy, as we come to the end of our, our conversation here, um, uh, Annie will be listening, um, uh, as, as will many others who are interested in pivoting to a more performance-oriented approach to developing soft skills, one that is much more reliable 
um, for affecting and influencing the way that that people actually work in their organization and then gets the uh, the the impact that uh, that that that's required how would you suggest that they begin um you know they, we, any any large journey starts with a single step what should the 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 initial steps be so i think that that the step is kind of a big one it's a series of quick self assessment and situational assessments and planning so you know what's that context i'm in where am i what do i know and not know and the issue is of course most of the time people don't know what they don't know they don't know if what they know is valid and and appropriate in a different context so you've got to decide where you are on your own learning and performance curve regarding you know performance based instruction training or learning you know where are you have is this brand new you've never heard of this or you've been doing it for a while or what where is your leadership in l&d and the rest of the team because if you're way out ahead of everybody and they're all way behind that's a different situation and how you handle that but i would be way out ahead and blaze that trail and deal with my customers and set an example for other people because whether you know i can't you know make my own leadership upset but i have in the past my client my clients in corporate america's uh, training organizations have made their management upset with what we did until they heard about how much the clients actually liked it and appreciated it because it was totally different it wasn't you know because it was focused on performance hmm. so you know so you got to decide where am i where am i trying to go where's the team where are we trying to go where's our clients and stakeholders where are they in all of this hmm. are they hungry for this are they complaining about the current state of lnd if because if they're not that's a different situation here but but i've got to i think the best thing is to to apply this as an example. I did work with General Motors and we were changing how they were approaching training and they started taking the early customers that they had who hated the idea of what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. But then they loved it when it was all done. So they became the people that were sent out as missionaries to the rest of the General Motors organization to tell them, yeah, I hated it too. I thought it was just a bunch of hooey and you know but but it works mm. and that's that's what i wanted and so you're going to be skeptical they would say they did a video of this you're going to be skeptical about this but hold on wait wait and see if this can have an impact on your people's ability to perform because that's what it's all about mm -hmm. and and so i think that somebody's got to blaze that trail you can't ask for permission you can just do good work you can always you know uh what is the saying uh you can uh, seek forgiveness rather than permission so don't don't think that you've got to seek permission on this and maybe you decide i got to make some minor steps i can't go whole hog on this thing i can't do it all and because that'll throw everybody so again that's part of that situational awareness and where am i and where's my organization and where's my customers and stakeholders and if i do this what will the reaction will be and do i need to tell people beforehand that i'm going to do this or do I surprise them? Mm. If they're going to stop me, I probably will surprise them. If they go, oh, that's interesting. Let's let's try it. Well, then I would tell them in advance. But but I got to have a better understanding of my clients and where their heads are at on all of this thing here. They come to us asking for learning. They really want performance impact, mm. most likely, unless it's a regulatory compliance kind of issue and they got to check the box and they want this to be done. So that's not the hill we should die on. We should die on the hill where there's significant returns for making an improvement in people's performance. Yeah, and I think that uh, that as a final question, Guy, 
uh, I'm talking to the uh, the right person here because the hard work's been done. The uh, you know this this has been explored, this has been road tested, and we and uh, and this has been documented, uh, and uh, and and we we can say for decades and decades. So if the listener wants to learn more about a performance oriented approach that they can apply to soft skills, and they wish to develop themselves uh, so that they can proceed with confidence, uh, how would you recommend they do so? Well, uh, so. You know, there's plenty of articles and books and things like that. I have a website, HPT Treasures, Human Performance Technology Treasures, from the old NSPI and ISPI days. But there's people that have been on our podcast that we did on the pivot to performance, and Carl Binder has a series of workshops and articles and videos, a wealth of resources. He and I use different language, but we come from the same uh, place, so to speak. And our gurus, our mentors that we learn from, were different. They were business partners, actually, but but it all is rooted kind of in the in the same thing. So that's one of the things that the learner will have to navigate is the different use of language, and does it mean the same thing? And it's uh, unfortunate the fact they'll just have to do that. But but so there are people like Carl. There's you know Dawn Snyder you mentioned earlier. Uh, she's a great practitioner, done a lot of great work. Um, she doesn't offer workshops on these things that I know about, but she does teach in one of the programs at Boise State along with uh, Steve Villachica, who we had on uh, that series as well. So there are a number of resources um, and a lot of good guidance that's been provided already. And the, if you're motivated to learn this, you can start at HPT Treasures. And these are people who started off in instruction back in 1962 and realized quickly that you can have stellar instruction and it may not change a thing. There's more to performance than knowledge and skills. And that began their exploration. All those gurus back in the 60s, the Harlesses, the Magers, the Rumlers, the Gilberts, and, and dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds more who have done this and applied it successfully. Um, and it's not a rote thing you apply. You have to be adaptable. You have to adapt what you've learned to the client situation and fit that. Wonderful. Thanks, Guy. And we'll put uh, links to all those in the show notes as well. But Guy, this has been uh, hugely enlightening. I knew it would be, uh, but uh, but I want to uh, thank you uh, on behalf of uh, certainly of myself and Annie, who uh, who made the request, and the other listeners. Uh, for, uh, thank you very much for being a guest again on the Learning Development Podcast. Thank you. In order to break the cycle of heavy investment, yet little demonstrable return, we need to do something differently. Fortunately, this isn't an untrodden path. Trailblazers like Guy and Joe Harless, who we mentioned during our conversation, have done the hard work for us. It's up to us to expect more of ourselves and to follow them. If this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective, of which I'm an active member. Join me and thousands of L&D peers via the link to the L&D Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn. Again, you'll find links in the show notes. And goodbye for now. <laughs>